Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 244, air date February 8th, 2018. Hello, everyone. If you're uh, tuning in, we had a little bit of uh, technical difficulties. We're learning actually how to broadcast on all three medium, and I'm actually setting up uh, this to work on uh, YouTube, Facebook, as well as Periscope. And the name of our talk is What is Racism and Who Profits, which I'm going to be tweeting out right now, and we'll go live. Um, I'm going to set this up first. And uh, this will go live in parallel. What I have to do is it's sort of a little bit of an interesting orchestration. I also have to make sure that uh, uh, I'm going to pick Facebook is now about to go live. So Facebook is going live. Let's see, Facebook is live. And then I'm going to go live on Twitter. So welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Shiva Ayadure. As many of you know, I'm running for United States Senate. But more importantly, I'm also, just like one of you, a working guy. I'm an inventor scientist, still uh, run a company today called Cytosolve, uh, which is literally figuring out ways to eliminate the need for animal testing. We've spun out seven different companies, and Cytosolve, in fact, discovered a multi-combination therapy for pancreatic cancer. So I work as a full-time scientist and an inventor. Uh, but I'm running for United States Senate because I believe that Everyday people should be participating in governance not, governance, not the establishment and lawyer lobbyists like Elizabeth Warren. I want to talk and have a conversation with you about probably an extremely important topic um, called um, racism. The title of this talk is, What is Racism and Who Profits? Everything okay, Frank? Okay, good. Frank's my technical guy here, so we're making sure everything's coming through. Um, so we're really going to talk about what is racism and who profits. And I believe this is important because um, you're going to get a good perspective and I think a unique perspective, hopefully it's insightful, hopefully it makes sense to you, from a guy who's gone through the journey of immigration, coming to America as a legal immigrant, gone through the process of education and gone through the process of innovation, immigration, education and innovation. Throughout that journey, I've always been very, very politically active, and I'll tell you why, because it comes to this issue of what I call racism, or more broadly, segregation. Some of you may know I grew up in India at a time, and still today, there's a thing which was very predominant then called the caste system. The caste system is quite unique. You see, it was a form of segregation, which basically you, basically put you into buckets based on not what you did, but where you were born. So. At a, at, a, at a very high level, at the top of this thing was the Brahmins or the priesthood or the scribes. Below them was the kings, below them were the warriors, below them were the business folks, and then the rest of the people called Shudras, very much like the unfortunate N-word. And we fell into that, which we were called the untouchables or low caste. And by the way, you won't find a lot of Indians like me in America. It's quite unique that my parents actually made it here. Um, most of the people you find are from the upper caste. So you won't find a lot of uh, Indians like Shiva Ayadure in America. So what I want to share with you as a young kid, I was exposed to the caste system on a very deeply personal level. Um, uh, one of my earliest memories was as a young child after I finished playing soccer, went to 
uh, one of my friends' home, quote unquote friends' home. Uh, I was probably four or five, and his mother would not let me into the house and called me a shudra, which is again like uh, the derogatory N-word, and gave me water in a very different looking glass because they thought I would pollute their home. And that's when I went to my mom and I asked her, what is all this about? And she said, oh yeah, we are shudras. That's what we're called. And when she was a young child, when she went to the well to fetch water, they would all say shoo shoo as though they were chasing away some pig or something. So that is the caste system of India where there was segregation. But at a high level, we have to understand that those in power, why did they do this? You got to understand that ultimately we have to understand this comes down to economics. As long as we focus on the caste or race and we forget the economic opportunity for those people in power, we will always be fighting against each other. And I'll get to that. But in this case, those in power had created the caste system so they could denigrate certain people, which means diminish them, make them feel horrible, make them feel less than being a human so they could pay them no wages or low wages. That's why this existed. Because look, if you run a business, there's revenue and then there's expenses, which leads to profit. And the goal of this model was to maximize profit. And the way you maximize profit is to lower the amount of expenses. And the way you lower expenses is by diminishing one class of people that they're worthless and they mean nothing and to enslave them. That's where all of this comes from. So we got to understand that. That's where the caste system came from. You know, as I said, I, we can, the, 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 my journey begins as an immigrant relative to the United States. I came here as an immigrant with my parents as a seven-year-old kid. We came initially to Patterson, New Jersey, 1970, literally on December 5th, 1970. Patterson, New Jersey, very segregated, predominantly all African-Americans. So this Indian-American family leaves on their little TWR air flight, lands in Patterson. And you know, for me, this is quite fascinating because I just thought all of America was black people because that's who I saw in Patterson, New Jersey for the first time. And then about a year later, we moved to Clifton, which was a mixture of blacks and whites, and Persephone, same thing, working class blacks and whites, and eventually to Livingston, New Jersey, in a period of seven years. Livingston was predominantly a Jewish population, all white, and me and my sister were the two dark-skinned Indian kids among uh, close to 4,000 uh, white kids. And my journey was, again, through the public school system. By the time I was 14, I was very motivated. Not only was I motivated to do well in sports, I had a lawn mowing business as a kid, uh, w uh, was selected for American Legion Jersey Boy State, which was a big honor. But by the time I was 14, I had this amazing opportunity to go to New NYU uh, because I'd finished all my math courses and participate in a computer science program. Um, accelerated program where I learned seven programming languages. After I finished that, I still had humanities courses in my high school at Livingston High School, but a amazing teacher and my mom uh, who introduced me to a professor at Rutgers, Med what is now known as Rutgers Medical School in the heart of Newark, New Jersey, which is predominantly all African American, arranged it so I could travel from Livingston, an all white neighborhood, to the middle of Newark, New Jersey as a 14 year old kid in the middle of the school day and work eight, 10, 16 hours a day uh, on a job. What was that job? Again, you have to understand, Newark, New Jersey was predominantly, as I mentioned, African-American. And in that university um, were uh, doctors and administrative staff. Now, the administrative staff was typically comprised of secretaries. Secretaries, again, were predominantly women. You see, in those days, another form of segregation existed where women were told that they were only good to be either a teacher, a housewife, 
um, a secretary or a um, teacher or a nurse. Those were re those four roles. And in that organization, this medical school, I was given an amazing opportunity where I was given the opportunity of a lifetime because Dr. Les Michelson did not believe in segregation. He said, you know, even though you're 14 years old, I'm gonna treat you like an adult. We have people you're 30, 50, 60 years older. You will have a challenge I'm gonna give you, but as long as you show up to work and you work hard, we will treat you like an adult. And that's what I did. I'd bring in my briefcase as a 14-year-old kid and I work 16, 18 hour days, sometimes two in the morning. And what did I work on? Dr. Michelson gave me an amazing challenge. You see, in those days, by the way, anyone over the age of 40 will know this. Most of the people under the age of 40 don't take this wrong because many of the people who've created a controversy out of pure ignorance did not know what communication existed in 1978. You see, 1978, when I started working at that medical school, the way communication took place was through the telephone system or through what was called the inter-office mail system, always manned by secretaries. These secretaries in every office, always reporting up to a mail, had on their desktop a computer. That computer, I mean, not a computer, a typewriter. On their desktop was a thing called a typewriter. Underneath their desk was a trash can. Behind them were these metal file folders. On their desk was an inbox, an outbox, paper clips. On that typewriter, they put a sheet of paper and they type away a thing called a memo, which said two from subject. Sometimes they do a carbon copy. That's where CC comes from, where they take one piece of paper, attach another carbon paper, put another piece of paper and type away if they wanted to send uh, an email to someone, I mean a mail to someone and a carbon copy. I was asked to convert this entire system to the electronic version of it. Inbox, outbox, folders, a hundred features. Now, in those days, a computer would fill this entire room. Um, we had a thing called a mini computer, which was just coming. On those mini computers, you could exchange simple text messages. That's not what I'm talking about. That's basic electronic exchange of messages. I was asked to convert this entire system to the electronic version. And I called that system email, a term never used before in the English language. I wrote 50,000 lines of code, worked damn hard to do that as a kid. And such a system had never existed before in the history of humankind, period. And that's simply a fact. Whether people like to manipulate history, uh, let them go find other systems, it does, does not exist. And I called that system email for the singular reason that the programming language only allowed six characters for variables, but the operating system only five. So a 14-year-old Indian American kid in the heart of Newark, New Jersey, primarily African American, where people think nothing comes out of there except crime, invents the first email system. Now to add further legal and official credibility to it, in 1981, I got accepted to MIT when I first went to MIT on the front page of the MIT newspaper around September 1981 as I arrived, three students out of the 1,041 students entering MIT were highlighted and one of them was me for having invented this system. And that December, I was invited to the president of MIT's house because I was elected student body leader, uh, freshman class, and he said, Shiva, you know, it's unfortunate that the Supreme Court does not allow patents of software, but you should copyright it, which I didn't know, my parents weren't lawyers. So I wrote away, as you can see in the back of this, for the copyright uh, form, filled it out, Submitted, and this was not simply putting a C with a circle. You had to go back and forth, submit your code, and on August 30th, 1982, a teenager 
at that time was issued the first US copyright for email officially recognizing me as the inventor of email because again, if patents were allowed, I would have filed that. But those are the facts. A 14-year-old kid from Newark, New Jersey, wrote 50,000 lines of code, called it email, had every feature as we know in modern email systems, and got the first US copyright recognizing me as the official uh, inventor of email. I don't think anyone else has this copyright. So the facts are black and white on this. I never even wanted fame or fortune. In those days, copyright, unlike patents, doesn't let you get royalties. I would have been a gazillionaire right now and everyone would be sort of bowing down to me and there would be no controversy. But those are the facts. I went to MIT, did four degrees in and out of there, started seven companies, invented many things beyond email, made a lot of money doing that. So it's not like um, I needed the invention of email to add to my credibility. But something interesting happened uh, on, uh, in uh, November 2011. My loving mom uh, uh, was dying, which I didn't even know at the time, of pulmonary fibrosis, a horrible disease where you die very quickly, and in a suitcase. Now remember, this is 35 years later. I've, I've made a lot of money doing a lot of other things, um, uh, started many companies, have all my degrees. Um, at that time, something fascinating happens. My mom's dying of pulmonary fibrosis in a suitcase. She presents me with all the documentation from 1978. Uh, in a Samsonite suitcase, all the computer code, the computer tapes, all of it, beautifully stored. The editor of Time Magazine, Doug Ameth, um, was, by the way, the only journalist to date, not some millennial 20-year-old uh, half-assed journalist like we have out there, um, actually went through the material, senior editor of Time, and wrote an article, and you can look at it, called The Man Who Invented Email on November 11, 2011. No controversy. Three months later, the Smithsonian contacted me and wanted all my materials. I was originally going to donate it to MIT. Museum, MIT said, you know, it doesn't belong here. It belongs in a museum. On February uh, 16, uh, 16th, it went into the Smithsonian. On that day, a young Washington Post reporter wrote a beautiful article saying, V.A. Shiva Ayodhre honored as the inventor of email. Now you would think that this would be a great opportunity uh, to really celebrate the American dream. A guy came from India with nothing, went through education, went to MIT. But what happened after that young, by the way, as an African-American reporter wrote that article, was vitriol came. And, and where did that vitriol come? And it included people calling me an asshole, a dick, a fraud, horrible names and saying this, including this curry-stained Indian should be beaten and hanged. And I want everyone to listen to that, particularly to you liberals out there, quote-unquote liberals, who are the ones who frankly are attacking me, the same liberals who claim that they want to help the poor, darky, and the minority uh, get better and achieve things. The reality was that the thought of a 14-year-old kid in Newark, New Jersey inventing email does not compute for certain people because deep down the same people who claim they're against racism are the biggest racists and that's what we're going to talk about and why that's important. I, so I know this on a very personal level. It is fundamentally what came out was a mixture of racism and a mixture of a narrative that had been cast far too long in American um, by the American establishment that all great innovation must come out of the military industrial academic complex. You see for 35 years, when I didn't, wasn't out there promoting that I invented email, a company called Raytheon and a bunch of old, frankly, uh, uh, 
guys who think that they're the only ones who could invent anything of the ARPANET era who frankly did not invent email. At best, they maybe did early simple text messaging. And a guy called Ray Tomlinson, who was promoted as the inventor of email by a company called Raytheon, which had put their entire brand on him because they were into the cybersecurity business in the 2000 period. They, they were in a multi-billion dollar industry. So when my work went into the Smithsonian, it burst their false advertising. And so they had to destroy me, unleashing hell, that how could a 14-year-old kid invent email? It existed before. And then they forced the Washington Post to do a very interesting, not retraction, but correction. And the correction they made was, Shiva Idre is not the inventor of electronic messaging. Electronic messaging predates email. Obviously, I have never claimed to be the father of electronic messaging, but I am the inventor of email. So the correction that the Post made is really not an attack on me. It basically clarifies that electronic messaging, which goes back to the Morse code, existed. But the really interesting issue to observe here is why was there so much vitriol? And why is there still so much vitriol when I dare to claim the rightful position in history that I am the inventor of email? By all facts, that's what it is. And you can see all the arguments that still keep coming up. Gawker Media, Gizmodo, wrote three defamatory articles against me. After four years, we found a great lawyer, Charles Harder, who also helped Hulk Hogan, and we took down Gawker, which needed to be taken down. I am a big proponent of free speech, but truthful free speech. The First Amendment does not support defamation and libel. So when you look at this whole story that I've shared with you, and you look at what is racism, racism is not someone calling me the N-word, or not someone calling me some horrible words. That's ignorance. But the liberals out there like to embrace that and attack the poor white or the quote-unquote redneck as they're doing racism because they do that. That's not racism. The real racists are the people who run the military-industrial-academic complex, people like Raytheon, people at Harvard, people like Elizabeth Warren, people who, take, who have the ability to manipulate uh, matter and, and assets for their own benefit to suppress one race over the other. Now, in this case with email, the fascinating opportunity to learn is that as long as I was at MIT and I did all the good things, I was on the front page of MIT three times for inventing many things. You see, I was being a good Indian. I was supporting MIT's um, uh, notion of inclusivity and diversity. MIT loves that, right? A nice dark face, it supports our model. But the day that I dare say that, wait a minute, email was actually done before I came to MIT in Newark, New Jersey, that blows a narrative. It blows a narrative, first of all, where does innovation come from? Because if innovation comes from places like Newark, New Jersey, by the way, the, the guy who invented TV was also a 14-year-old kid on a small farm in Franklin, Idaho. So if innovation comes from those places done by so-called people who shouldn't be doing it, poor whites and poor blacks, you see that busts up the costs of innovation because because Silicon Valley and places like Kendall Square and MIT want to keep the cost of innovation high. See, it comes down to economics. So if every poor darkie and every poor white kid can innovate and make things like email or TV, it busts up their narrative and it lowers the cost. They want to keep costs high, so they have to diminish other people. The other part of this narrative is when we look at someone like Elizabeth Warren. She is a racist, and you liberals hear me well because you're talking to a dark-skinned guy who's gone through the American journey. Elizabeth Warren is a racist for the singular reason that she has access to power. 
and she lied on her application to get into Harvard. She manipulated affirmative action for her own behalf. That's racism. Not someone who calls me the N-word. That's not racist. That's ignorance, and we can deal with that in a different way. But what Elizabeth Warren did is racist. What was done to me to diminish the facts that email was invented in Newark, New Jersey, to unleash hell and still goes on, that's racist. So all of you out there who do not want to believe the facts, then you're living in la-la land, that's racism because you want to perpetuate the narrative that all great innovations can only come from big military, big corporations, and big academia. When the fact is a 14-year-old kid in Newark, New Jersey did invent email. So if you want to look at racism, look at yourself when you consider, when you attack the fact that a 14-year-old kid did not invent email. But who profits from all of this? It's the establishment. You see, the establishment wants poor blacks and poor whites to fight against each other. You know, today is the seventh or eighth day Black History Month. One of the things we got to understand is that ultimately the media journalists do RPR journalism, race, politics, religion. They love it they, and they use it for clickbaiting. Recently, you know, I met with a guy called Millennial Matt. I didn't know who he was. You know, we were driving. He wanted a bumper sticker. He uh, brought out a frog called Kek. By the way, Kek is an Egyptian uh, symbol of transformation. In the Indian symbol, the frog represents destruction and transformation. And uh, so I, you know, I'm all praise to Kek. Praise the frog because the frogs, by the way, are amazingly wonderful symbols. But a moronic idiot called Jared Holt, which is what he is, he's got, a, I think, a bachelor's in philosophy, um, part of Right Wing Watch, which is a Media Matters, I think a Soros-funded group, called me a Nazi or referred to me as a Nazi, insinuated. Then I got an email from Gizmodo wanting me to comment why I met with Millennial Matt. This is a form of racism, trying to control me, who I can meet with, who I can't, and saying that I'm a racist. The absurdity of this is beyond words. But the truth is, these people in power, the establishment and their henchmen, be it uh, Right Wing Watch, be it organizations like uh, Gizmodo and the mainstream media, want to tell people like you and me, keep us in a box and the way we're supposed to behave. You see, the notion, in my case, of an Indian is Indians are supposed to be in the lotus position. Indians are supposed to move their head like this, uh, you know, be Gandhian. Maybe they can be CEOs of companies, but an Indian dare not be an innovator. That's preserved for certain people. And an Indian dare not defend himself and speak like I do with sometimes anger and passion to defend what I believe is the truth. That's not Indian-like. You see, I'm not being a good Indian, nor do they want people of other types of background to behave in a certain way. So the establishment wants people to be in their tracks. Women in 78 were only supposed to be certain roles and women can only behave in other roles. But it, this is all done for the singular reason of keeping wages low among certain people. And this is what you got to understand. In Boston right now, you know, with all the, the heyday of, you know, the, the bourgeois, uh, Brahmins of Boston support are against racism. The average net worth of a black person is eight bucks, and I'm sure of that of a poor white is maybe on a good day 20, 30 bucks. We got to do some research on that. But those of the elite are a quarter of a million dollars. You see, today in the world, we have multiracial aristocracy. Organizations like Harvard are an example of that. It's not just black and white anymore, it's people of all color. Uh, some of them are bourgeois. 
um, and some of them, poor blacks and poor whites are below. Uh, I can guarantee you people like Oprah Winfrey and people like Jay-Z do not really represent black people. They're, they use racism so they can manipulate people for their benefit, similar to what those uh, others, uh, people of uh, 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 the same white persuasion do to split up people. So both elite groups create racism in order to diminish people to keep wages low. Look, ultimately, you know, on Black History Month, we got to recognize that people like Martin Luther King towards the end of their life and Malcolm X towards the end of their life came to a fundamental conclusion. Uh, Malcolm's greatest speech, and I'm paraphrasing this, was he said, ultimately, I believe that there will be a clash between the oppressed and those who do the oppressing, but it will not be based on the color of the skin. I think two months later, Malcolm was shot after that. That's when he became dangerous. As long as he was perpetuating as a part of the Nation of Islam, uh, you know, sort of cultural black nationalism, that was great. People loved him, and the establishment loved him. But the day he was going to unite the American worker, black or white, that's when he became dangerous because he would have increased their stature, their wages, and he would lower the profits of the establishment. So in conclusion, what I want to let you know is I have a very unique perspective on this. Racism, racism let me be clear, is not those people who do racial, quote-unquote racial slurs. R racism comes from down the street here, from Harvard, it comes from the military industrial academic complex, people who perpetuate lies and people who segregate people and people who attempt to deny whether a 14-year-old kid invented email or whether a 14-year-old kid invented TV in Franklin, Idaho, or who is intelligent, who isn't. And so, you know, when you guys have time, you may want to review this video. I know I've shared a lot with you, but I think we need to have a broader conversation in America. And whether you're black or white, recognize this that those in power want us fighting against each other. And that's why they create their two parties. That's why they break us up into liberal and conservative so they can manipulate us. And it's time we end that. Our campaign, Shiva for Senate, is going against the establishment. It's about the power of you and I to declare our independence, break our chains from all of this, and recognize that we are all brothers and sisters, and the real enemy is those people who try to divide us, and those are the people who profit. Anyway, take time to go to Shiva for Senate. This video will be up on YouTube, it's up on Facebook, and it's up on Twitter. Thank you very much and good night. I'm going to be shutting this off, so you're going to see me do a couple of uh, actions here, but I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. God bless you.